Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You're listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. If you want to get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thanks for downloading. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Los Angeles, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And joining us from Nashville, Tennessee, fresh out of off-season camp, it's the coach, Corey Burton. What's going on, guys? Yeah, uh, joined up with this new organization called the National Playmakers Academies. Um, and uh, once I learn more about it here in the in the near future, I will discuss further as to what it is. But right now, it's just a series of football camps, and I'm excited to uh, to get after it. But Matt... Josh got an action-packed show today, guys, and uh, ready to get after it now. Let's go. Oh yeah, we got a, we got a lot. We got a lot there. So, uh, and the third member of our uh, of our triumvirate in the second city, a man who recently became the national spokesperson for the city of Indianapolis. It's our interested <laughs> blogger, Josh Cook. Yeah, everything everything about the city is true. It it feels like it was designed to to host big sporting events. Uh, the Big Ten title game was a blast. Seeing Indy uh, 500 racetrack, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was a blast. I caught a game Saturday morning up at Hinkle Fieldhouse. And uh, for people that are basketball fans, they know that that's one of the, the crown jewels of collegiate basketball. Also where they filmed Hoosiers. That building was spectacular. Had a, had a fantastic weekend right up until the last 30 seconds of the game. I'm sure we'll be talking about that. Absolutely, we will be. We'll begin that a little bit, because uh, on today's show, we're going to wrap up this season by looking back at those championship games that Josh just alluded to, as well as look forward to some of the key bowl matchups. But first, it's time to hop on the coaching carousel and discuss all the new developments since we got together last week. Uh, we're going to start in Columbia, South Carolina, where the Gamecocks have hired Will Muschamp. Coach, who comes across as more desperate here, Cocky or Will Muschamp himself? Uh, cocky, I think, um, you know, Will Muschamp's just the beneficiary of a good situation. Um, you know, I think he wanted to get back into the head coaching job, uh, head coaching role. Uh, I think, you know, he's going to take what he learned at Florida and carry it over to Columbia. We'll see how much he learned or what he's willing to, uh, cast aside and what he's willing to do differently. But, you know, I think South Carolina honestly could have done better, but if Will Muschamp has learned from his previous mistakes, it might not be such a bad, bad move. Yeah, I mean, when you think about the Muschamp era at Florida, they just didn't have an offense, and he didn't really know how to recruit a quarterback, and that side of the ball was just a mess. No one really complained about his game management and, you know, when to kick, when to take timeouts. Things things like that seemed fine. Uh, I think if, if he really wants to succeed in the second chance, he'll hire a great offensive staff, give uh, whoever's calling the offensive plays a lot of leeway, maybe even make that person – an associate head coach. We'll see how much uh, his Florida flop humbled him, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm intrigued by it. I don't love the hire. I don't hate the hire. I'm willing to, to give it a year or two to, to see what happens. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that's a good way to go forward with – uh, with, with Muschamp, just because, you know, he, he can definitely bring a, uh, a defense in there. And we saw some of those most successful teams under Spurrier actually were really strong on the defensive side of the ball when they had guys um, 
like uh, like Ingram and uh, like Clowney rushing the passer. So uh, we'll, we'll see if he can uh, if he cannot not quite wake up the echoes. He's not at Notre Dame, but see if he, he can wake up uh, wake up that program. So um, let's well, I'll tell you the most interesting thing about it is when we talk about next fall, talking about some of the coaches on the hot seat. Gus Malzahn has to be way up there. Decreasing wins every year, 12, 8, 6. They were awful this year. Plus, Champ would have been a popular guy to, to can midway through next year as a kind of a pull, parachute. Now he doesn't have that cord to pull. Auburn really needs a, a turnaround. This is not a program that's too patient. They fired Gene Chizik, who won a title. Gus Malzahn doesn't have that luxury. He lost his title. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. All right. Well, yeah, you're right. A seat becomes red hot. We might be talking about Auburn next year. Absolutely. Well, let's stick in the SEC and move over to Mizzou, who promoted a very popular defensive coordinator, Barry Odom, to head coach to, uh, you know, to take the position of the now retired uh, Gary Pinkle. So, uh, Josh, do you think that, you know, Mizzou might have been better going with an outside candidate here or was the inside guy the right choice? Well, they poked around. They they talked to some people. They never seemed to get much interest. And uh, I said when when Pinkle resigned that they needed someone uh, who could help run that offense, help kind of uh, invigorate the offense. It was weird. Pinkle was an offensive guru, but they'd kind of fallen off the last few years. Odom's their defensive guy, so at least that side of the ball, which has excelled since they joined the SEC, is going to be great. He's going to have the same issue Muschamp does. He needs to find someone who can really, really help him out on that side of the ball. Coach, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great, I think it's a great move for uh, for Missouri. I think you know continuity in this situation is great with all the turmoil that, that, that they've been through. You know, I think Barry Odom just kind of, you know, he he had him playing championship caliber defense. You know, defense has never been the issue. In Missouri, uh, you know, they just need to find somebody, an offensive guru, come in, uh, help, them, help them along and help them get back on, on the right track and so they can compete in the East. Uh, the East with Muschamp now, Barry Odom, staying at Missouri, uh, Tennessee, improving each and every year, and, and Florida sitting on top right now. It, it looks to be a pretty competitive Eastern division next year with all, you know, with all the changes afoot. Uh, Georgia officially signed Kirby Smart today. Um, I know we talked about that on Thursday. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's official now. And he's, uh, after his press conference, he's jumping on a plane to go see Jacob Eason, um, star quarterback that's on the fence right now. So um, big things in the East. I really like this for Missouri. And uh, just depends on who he hires as offensive coordinator will determine his success. Absolutely, yeah. J- holding on to Jacob Eason for uh, Georgia is going to be absolutely huge. Uh, number one quarterback in the country, being uh, from Washington State, being committed to the uh, University of Georgia for uh, since he was a sophomore or junior. He's been committed for a long time now. How long has he been? Seventeen months, I think. I saw a stat on on, a, on our message boards. Wow, that's a that, that's a while. Well, um, let's uh, let's move over to the ACC and talk about one of the most surprising hirings, in my opinion. In and that is uh, Virginia snagging Bronco Mendenhall from BYU. Josh, I know you've always been uh, a big proponent of uh, what Mendenhall has done out there in Provo. So you obviously think this is a great move for Virginia, right? It's a brilliant hire. Um, you know, I think I said that Scott Frost was my favorite hire, and I really like the Matt Campbell hire. 
Uh, this is now number one. This Ooh. is uh, this is a guy who won 99 games in 11 years, two 11-win seasons, uh, tons of uh, bowl success, ranked uh, four times in a row in the, the mid-2000s. And I, I know that since moving to independent, they haven't been as good. Ten wins in 2011 and eight wins every year since, and then nine wins this year. But I think there's a reason for that. They're independent. They're, the schedule is wearing him down. They need to get into a conference. I think he, you know, he loved, he loved BYU. He he was there since 2000 as a or 2003 as a defensive coordinator. Um, he's from Utah. You know, he he had no reason to leave. He was making pretty good money at BYU. I think he just realized that that schedule is not for long-term success. And this might make BYU reevaluate some of where they're going as a football program. Yeah, I I absolutely love this hire. Um, It's not necessarily my favorite, not because, you know, I dislike it by any stretch, but I think it's a phenomenal hire for Virginia. I think that's the best they could have done. Um, And if I was a Cavalier fan, I I would definitely be jacked at the the site of Bronco Mendenhall at the press conference, um, you know, wearing Virginia gear. You know, he, he does – you know, he, he got BYU back to a playing at a high level. Uh, the guy just – the guy just has it, I, I think. And, and there's not really any way to describe what Bronco Mendenhall brings to the table. He just has that it factor that just – he gets it done. And uh, he finds ways to win. He finds ways to, to motivate kids. And I think he'll do a good job recruiting as well. So, uh, excited for the hire. Excited for Bronco Mendenhall. Excited for University of Western – or University of Virginia – Excuse me, and uh, you know I really like it. Yeah, I I think it's a it's definitely a home run as well. Well, let's stick in the ACC and move up to college football's worst kept secret that is Syracuse hiring Dino Babers from Bowling Green. Um, you know, it, Syracuse is desperate for a coach that can you know really um, infuse any sort of excitement into this program. And if you look at that Bowling Green offense. Well, Josh, I mean, I know uh, we, we've talked about this all year, how, you know, how wide open and how much fun it is to watch Bowling Green. So, can you know, I, I you think Syracuse is probably hoping to sort of get the same thing out of it, I assume, right? Yeah, and I mean, they, they had a quarterback this year who was all right um, at the beginning of the year, but he got hurt. Um, and th- they were really never the same. So, maybe – Maybe he's got some pieces to work with. I, the bigger thing to me is just I don't know why coaches do this. Why does he need to to deny it for so long and and, and frankly lie lie to his players, lie to the media, like just own it. The the kids, as much as the kids hate it, they know it's a business and they know they're at Bowling Green. So I, I don't get why he does that. It's insulting to his team and it's insulting to the media. And it's insulting to us as fans. Yeah, I, you know, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, um, as far as what Syracuse is getting, I, I think they're gonna I think they're gonna enjoy Dino Babers. Um, I think he's gonna get the fans in in the in the building. I don't know what that's gonna do for their overall success of winning football games, but um, if they lose, they're gonna lose excitingly. And, and once the fans start rolling in, the support will start rolling in. I just I just didn't like the way. 
that whole situation went down, Josh, and I, I agree with you. I think it's not fair to everybody for him trying to cover it up and trying to say he's not going, and then all of a sudden he takes the job. I mean, if, if he's going to do it, I mean, he, he just needs to be up front and, you know, just say it from the get-go. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we all knew this was coming. So I, I, I guess I understand the, the one side of it, him wanting – to, you know, not really say anything until after his team has played in the championship game. But, you know, still, this was – everyone knew where this was headed. It's not like he was going to lose the team by telling them this. So, um, well, let's move uh, again in uh, to Syracuse. One of Syracuse's old Big East rivals, Rutgers, uh, hired Chris Ash, the co-defensive coordinator at the Ohio State University. Um uh, Ash, uh, former defensive coordinator at, at both Arkansas and Wisconsin as well, uh, has you know ha- has a nice pedigree. But I'm not sure if he's the guy to revive this absolutely dormant program. Coach, what do you think? Well, uh, to be honest, I, I I'm kind of I don't really I guess it's because I don't really know much about Chris Ash. I, I know that Ohio State's defense is pretty darn good, but he he's also the co-coordinator, so. I don't know exactly what roles he's had in in uh, in that defense and what kind of roles he's had in the program, what Urban Myers let him do. Or, you know, usually when you have these assistants that's been with a guy for a long time, you know, like a Kirby Smart, um, their head coach usually gives them, you know, assistant head coaching duties and, and usually tries to, like, train them on, on being a head coach and gives them different tasks to do. And a lot of these guys, you can probably say that, that they receive that kind of training, but I'm just not sure what Chris Ash brings to the table. And, and you know, I, I guess it's part of, partly ignorance for, you know, for that part of the uh, – or for that conference and, and, uh, and Ohio State staff and, as a whole. Um, you know, I didn't really learn a whole lot about Tom Herman until he took over at, at Houston. So, um, you know, I guess it's just one of those things. It'll be a wait and see. I, I think it's a breath of fresh air. I think it's – you know, they they picked from the right program, you know, somebody who's used to winning and, uh, you know, maybe they'll get that and he'll he'll do some great things. I'm just not sure how to predict it. Um, I like the hire. I like the fact they went to Ohio State to get this guy and uh, stay in we'll, division for that. Exactly. And, and so we'll we'll see how it all pans out. You know, it's it's a mess over there. Um, well, uh, yeah, Josh, you're a big-time guy. What do you think about Ash? I think that Chris Ash just wanted a job, to be honest with you. Um, he actually graduated with his master's from Iowa State. He's from uh, Ottumwa, Iowa. He went to Drake. Uh, so he's got a lot of Iowa ties and, and was a graduate assistant back coach, you know, he was there for for six, seven years, working his way up that staff and graduated from there. And Iowa State didn't even have a bit of smoke or fire when they were trying to doing their coaching search. I think that he realized he needed to get a head coaching job to get a better job. And I think part of it, too, was he's at Ohio State where he's the co-defensive coordinator with Luke Fickle when he's been running his own show at Wisconsin and Arkansas. I think that he just did not like the situation he was in. I think that's why he took the Rutgers job, because this is not a place where anyone wants to be. Let's be honest. They're they're so far behind everyone in the Big Ten East that 
it's hard to see them winning more than two or three conference games for the foreseeable future. That's not a, a place you go to unless you are desperate for a job to have your resume out there or you are an egotistical maniac who thinks you can win anywhere. And I highly doubt Chris Ash is that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's also interesting. It's rare that you see a guy be a defensive coordinator at three straight stops. Um, you know, most guys he tend to ascend um, or or jump to the NFL or something like that. So this is going to be I don't know. I'm I if there's one thing he can do, it's recruit. He's been a pretty good recruiter wherever he's been before. So I think that will definitely help the Rutgers situation. But as much as, you know, for as far as X's and O's running program go, you know, he's an unknown he's an unknown commodity at this point. So I, I think there's a I think there's a smarter job that he could have taken, similar to Tom Herman that we'll probably be talking about shortly. Uh, we will be talking about sh- uh, about that shortly. First, though, uh, let's talk about North Texas real quick. They hired uh, North Carolina offensive coordinator Seth Luttrell. Um, that is, it'll, this will be Luttrell's first stop as a head coach. Um, coach, do you think that, uh, you know, can Luttrell, you know, bring some life to this program? He absolutely can. I, I think that, you know, for a team like North Texas, I, I think the same the same way that, Syracuse went after an offensive guy. I think they just need some excitement first, um, and I think they can have some patience with the first-year head coach uh, as long as he is putting up an exciting def- or exciting offense. I think in these situations, it's a lot easier to be a, a head coach offensive coordinator than it is to be a head coach defensive coordinator because there is there honestly there's a lot more game planning you have to do as a defensive coordinator. Um, and a lot more things during the game that you have to do as a coordinator um, on the defensive side of the ball that you don't as an offensive coordinator. So um, for that, I, I think that North Texas did a great job at hiring somebody who, who's got North Carolina's offense clicking uh, on all cylinders. Um, this guy obviously knows, you know, he knows football. He, he knows the game. He knows how to make things exciting. He knows you know, he, he's going to do what's most important for North Texas. He's going to put points on the board. He's going to put butts in the seats. And then with all that comes, you know, everything will come with it. Everything else will take care of itself. The wins will start coming. The support will, stop com- the support will start coming, uh, not only financially, but, you know, just in, in, the, in the mode of coaches wanting to sign up to coach on a staff, you know, uh, especially young and up-and-comers looking for their first coordinator jobs and things like that. We'll come to him, look to him, and, and, and maybe he'll provide some opportunities. So um, I think it's a great hire. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of it. I think North Texas is a school that uh, sits in a great recruiting state that can have tremendous potential. Even if it gets the big five's leftovers, there's still enough in that state to go around. Um, if, they're the, if, they're, if they finish first of, of, of the rest of the schools in Texas – you know, they're competing with Sam Houston State. They're competing competing with Houston, where I think Houston really now with Tom Herman is going to be uh, competing with the big boys within the state. So um, I, I think I think all signs point to this is going to be a good hire. Now, is he going to is he going to get his team in the in the New Year's Six Bowl anytime soon? No, probably not. But you know, we're going to we're going to look at te- you know we're going to look at North Texas contending for the uh, Conference USA Championship. Yeah, I think it's a mutually beneficial uh, arrangement, to be honest. Uh, Seth Luttrell, um, you know, not the, not the oldest person in the world, graduated from Oklahoma in 2001, so pretty young 
up and comer on North Carolina, 34th and 34th and passing, 22nd and rushing, 11th and scoring, pretty good numbers. Inheriting a North Texas team, 115th and passing, 83rd and rushing, and just 16 points per game. Uh, Latrell is from the state of Oklahoma, played at Oklahoma, coached at, uh, at Texas Tech. This is a guy that seems like he's got a lot of Big 12 connections. I'm sure what he's thinking is, hey, I do my work at North Texas. I'm there three to five years, turn them around, get them to a bowl game. I might get some of these uh, these programs calling because, you know, who knows when Bill Snyder retires? Who knows how bad Kansas is still is in a few years, you know? Who knows what's going on at Texas Tech, Texas A&M? There are jobs in that area that he knows he'll float to the top of their search committee if he succeeds at North Texas. And North Texas has a lot of talent in that avenue. He just needs to get a couple of them to stay at home. Yeah, that's uh, that's absolutely right. Well, that's all the that's all the positions filled since we last talked. Um, you know, we have uh, we talked about both Tulane and uh, Louisiana Monroe, and neither of those jobs have been filled yet. Not a lot out there on who uh, you know who the candidates are. I've heard Mike Yurkich for the for the Tulane job, but uh, we have two new jobs open now. Obviously, BYU has opened up uh, with. Uh, Bronco Mendehall leaving for Virginia. But the big surprise was East Carolina. This is what Josh was referring to earlier. East Carolina firing coach Ruffin McNeil, um, whose career record of 42-34 and 34 and 30-18 and 18 in conference is, uh, you know, pretty darn good for East Carolina. This is his first losing season. Uh, Josh, you think this was an absolute boneheaded move? Yeah, I mean um... – East Carolina, before he got there, um, yes, Skip Holtz had, had built a nice program, but for the most part, they weren't all that good. And his first two years were a little rocky. That he went eleven and fourteen his first two years, but were really competitive conference USA. And then twenty twelve really turned it around, eight and five, then ten and three. Then they joined the American. They went eight and five last year, five and three in conference, pretty consistent. Um, his offensive coordinator, Lincoln Riley, he's gone. He, he got a, a better job. He's at Oklahoma as their offensive coordinator. And then in camp, his quarterback got hurt. So he's doing it without a quarterback, without his offensive coordinator. Went 5-7, and seven, but you, you break down their 5-7 their and seven mark. They lost at Florida by a touchdown. Lost to BYU in Provo by a touchdown. They lost to Bullbound South Florida by five. They lost to Bullbound Cincinnati by three. They played Temple pretty tight, losing by ten. I don't see why. What was wrong with this season? I know the message boards talked about how you know he had had some goofy time management issues that he had lost in some bowl games that he had lost to, to some teams he shouldn't have at that he you know had some wins against STS schools. But at the same time, I'm seeing back-to-back wins against Virginia Tech. I'm seeing him drop 55 on North Carolina in Chapel Hill. You know, I, I'm seeing him hold his own at a, at a school in North Carolina against the power conference teams. I don't get it. How does he not have one year of, of you know, slack? The, the AD said that he, you know, that this was the third best job in the – in the conference and they needed to, you know, perform up to that. 
I don't know what he's smoking. Memphis looks better to me. Houston looks better to me. Temple looks better to me. Navy looks better to me. I've got, at best, the fifth job, and, you know, we can debate that if you guys want. I think I, you, I think you cut in Cincinnati are better than that job, too. I mean, yeah, you can easily make that argument. So I don't know what the AD is thinking. I read a little bit about the AD is relatively new. Uh, hey, you know what? This is an industry filled with a lot of egos. ADs want to get the pats on the back for having great hires. ADs know that they can get bigger jobs. You know, he could become an AD at a power school. He could become a conference commissioner like Bob Bowlesby did down the line. Maybe he's thinking, hey, if I make this change and we take off, you know, that's a gamble on my part, and I'm going to trust myself. But for the X's and O's part of it, I don't get it. Yeah, I I really don't get it. Um, You know, I I was – when I saw that news, I was thinking – I was scratching my head. I I was talking to my head coach, and and we were – you know, we were discussing it. And, and, I mean, you're East Carolina. I mean, what – I mean, what do you expect? I mean, you were already competing in the Conference USA for championships. I mean, he had you right at the level that you – I don't want to say needed to be, but it, right at the level that you should have been, you know, for, for being East Carolina. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the expectations were. I, I, I don't know what – you know, yeah, he had a tough year, but, I mean, look at all the adversity. And, and you know, it's one thing for adversity to strike it – you know, Alabama or, or, or Texas or somewhere like that, and, and you don't do so well, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're gone because adversity shouldn't strike like that. But at East Carolina, you know, yeah, you're going to have a season like that every once in a while, especially if your quarterback goes down, you lose your offensive coordinator. You know, I, I think he'd build enough, enough good faith to, to at least get another chance at, at hiring a new coordinator or making some changes to the staff or something. But, I mean, I guess egos are egos, and it's not a whole lot you can do about it, I guess. So, you know, it's a shame to see such a great – it's a shame to see a, a really good coach um, hit the bricks, but I think he'll get hired somewhere soon. Um, the, the rumors that I've read, uh, there's been a little, little bit of smoke. I, I don't want to make it too much of a rumor, but there was an article saying, hey, DJ Durkin from Michigan left. Ruffin McNeil, well-respected defensive coordinator, uh, has some ties to Jim Harbaugh. Um, he's a class act. But the, the other thing that sucks about it that from what I don't get is it was evidently handled horribly that players found out about it on Twitter. And also, this is an East Carolina alum. This is like a beloved coach. He's loved in the community. No one saw it coming, really. And, uh, you know, ECU's his alma mater, so you know he wasn't looking to jump ship and go to a bigger job at any point. This is dumb. And, you know, we like the Purple Pirates, and the reason we've enjoyed the Purple Pirates is because they had a crazy offense with Lincoln Riley, and Ruffin is an outstanding guy. Uh, it's going to be hard to ever, like, want them to do well, again, with this athletic director. I mean, they botched it so badly, it's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, that guy gave his all for his, for his university, and, and that's how they repay him. But, you know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping what's going to happen is whoever they hire, uh, hopefully is a head coach that jumps from one job to another, and Ruffin McNeil takes over for that head coach, and that team ends up doing a lot better than East Carolina does. 
Um, unless they hire Mike Bobo, of course. But hey, you know, uh, uh, Tulane is a in conference job. Maybe he'll uh, go yeah. down there. Can we st- can we start that propaganda train? Uh, Ruffin McNeil to Tulane. If I was Tulane's athletic director, I, I would have been on the phone with him six days ago. I, w- yeah. I would have hired him. I would be having a press conference right now with <laughs> McNeil if I was Tulane. You know, no disrespect to the good people of Greenville, North Carolina, but I'm willing to bet Bourbon Street is uh, a little bit more exciting than anything they have going on. Just a little bit. Yeah, I don't think that's very much of a stretch. All right. Well, um, let's move from a little coaching talk to a little to a little recap. And, uh, you know, all of you guys out there, we're sure you watch all these games, so we're going to get through them pretty quickly. Um, but we'll start – uh, in the Georgia Dome, which, for, as far as I'm concerned, I, I called the Boredom Dome on Saturday because that yeah. that SEC title game was one of the ugliest games I, I, I can remember. The Tide win 29-15. to 15, They don't cover. And, you know, Coach, what do we always say? you got to be sound in the kicking game, right? Yes. Yeah, uh, that, that showed up a couple times here, didn't it? Yes, it did. Uh, I mean, just the way the scoring started off in this game was a, a block kick for a safety. Uh and then of course they get a they get a field goal blocked, and uh, but they redeem themselves and they return a punt for for a touchdown. So Florida just man they you know they found every possible way to just make this tough on themselves. And when you get, when you get the kicking game broken down and you already don't have an offense, it makes it kind of tough on you, and it makes it kind of tough on the fans who who want to watch this game. But I mean I, I said it in the preview, or, or I think I said it in the preview, and if I didn't, I wanted to. And maybe I didn't get it out, or maybe I was having a brain cramp or something. But I, I knew this was going to be an ugly game. I knew Florida defensively was one of the top defensive teams in the country. It just didn't really see that their offense put out too much. So, I mean, this game went about like I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be ugly, boring. I thought Derrick Henry was going to struggle a little bit, uh, which he did a lot early on. Um, but he did break the record. Um, he did break Herschel Walker's record. Um, and he has, you know, I, I think he's solidified himself in, in the Heisman race. So, um, but yeah, definitely an ugly game. Uh, I kind of like, and, and this is the first time. This is the first time I've really ever done this with the SEC championship. I kind of lost interest a little bit, and I kind of just like quit watching it or quit paying attention. It was all in the background, but I couldn't really just like f- focus in on it. To be honest with you. Josh? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what else there is to add to it. It was just boring football. Um, I was at a tailgate, and they had it up on the Jumbotron, and we stopped watching it. That's how boring it was. We'd rather listen to a cover band than, than watch football. And that's all you need to say about the SEC title game, folks. Hey, um, we're going to talk about the group of five title games? Uh, you know what? Well, let, let, let's get through. Let's get through the big ones real quick, and then we'll get to the right. then we'll get to the fun ones. Uh, ACC championship game. Uh, this is a, a little more action packed. Clemson wins forty five thirty seven. But of course, the story is yet again bad referees. Josh, you've been up on this soapbox all year, um, and we had another screw up. A fake, you know, a uh, referee threw the flag for offsides on a um, on an onside kick that. North Carolina recovered, and it was not actually offside. This was a big, uh, th- you know, th- this this was huge. And so, Josh, does this does this taint the title game for you at all? Big time, big time. You got to let North Carolina have a chance there. How's this not a reviewable play? It makes no sense. And this isn't the first time either 
that it's been messed up. Um, my own Iowa Hawkeyes, 2006 Outback Bowl, same exact thing. And all they got was the Conference USA head of officials admitted to a mistake. That's all they got. That's yeah, like Oklahoma at, at Oregon, too, remember? Yep. yep. And, I mean, how is that not a reviewable play? We review everything. We review everything. You know, a targeting ejection call, review it. A fumble where the guy's clearly down. Hey, let's review it. Let's take another look. Uh, you know, all reviewing, all scoring plays are reviewed, even though they don't need to be on, you know, eight out of ten touchdowns are super obvious. So, you know, onside kicks are the most exciting play. It's better for college football to have more of them recovered. It's more exciting in the ACC title game to have North Carolina get a shot. And they were on fire in that fourth quarter. They had their full complements of timeouts. They had plenty of time with that offense. I mean, I don't know if they would have marched down and scored. I don't know if they would have converted the two-point conversion. But with the way the pendulum had swung and North Carolina was feeling it, I like their chances. I think it's a, you know, maybe a 55% chance that they go down and, and get a shot at tying the game. And, and to, to not have it, that's a shame. Yeah, it is. It really is. And, and, and it's a shame that that's what it came down to. Um, it was such a good offensive game. Um, it was it was one of those that was very exciting to watch. Um, and I think it was just – I hate that it was marred by that whole situation. But – you know, you know, you gotta, you gotta sit back and appreciate the performances, especially on the Clemson side of the ball. Um, you know, with uh, Deshaun Watson, he had 420 total yards. Um, he had five total. He was responsible for five total touchdowns, three of them through the air, uh, two of them on the ground. He was 26 to 42, 289 yards passing. He rushed for 131. I mean, he's he's really trying to. Uh, solidify himself for the highs. And he's really trying to get up there with, with Derrick Henry. Uh, Wayne Gallman, 28 carries, 187 and a touchdown. Uh, you know, and uh, one, one of the funniest moments of the game, and I probably watched this game more so than, you know, most people outside of Clemson, North Carolina fans, um, was the punter, Andy Teasdale. He got on the, he got on the uh, box score, one carry, four yards, and the most epic butt chewing of all time from Dabo Sweeney. That 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 vine of Dabo Sweeney chewing him. I, I think I watched it twenty times. It's so funny. He went he went back three separate times. Also, like he chewed, he he went on the field, chewed him all the way to the bench, walked back to the sideline, started chewing him again. One of the one of the defensive uh, Shaq Lawson got a uh, got a personal foul called on him uh, and all that whole time he's he is chewing his butt and then North Carolina scores he goes back for more and then <laughs> I think he goes back one more time and uh he's uh, you know it, it's, it's one of those moments you're like man I'd hate to be that guy yeah you know, I, I bet this guy does not I bet this guy would kick it next time they call a fake I bet he would still kick it just just to be safe yeah, just to be safe, indeed. Oh man. Well, you know, I, I, while I still think the better team won, it's just a shame that it's now another great game this year that is mired by the referees. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not the guy who has the answer to, to to solving this issue of 
poor refereeing, but we have to do something about that. I mean, you know, I think we will probably have to have a state of refereeing podcast later in the off season. But that might now, be one of our awards hint, hint, coming up. Um, <laughs> but, but 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 Matt, I was going to say this was a game that was uh, where quarterback play was 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 pretty awesome. Uh, Marquise Williams, he threw for two hundred twenty four yards. It was kind of an all-or-none type deal. He's 11 of 33, and uh, he also led, led in rushing, too. So um, Clemson, 13-0, three top 10 wins. Pretty impressive if you really think about it. Yeah, definitely. Well, let, let's move to um, the West Coast, um, to, to Santa Clara, where Stanford, for the second time this season, put it on the Trojans of USC. And for the second time this season, it was the Christian McCaffrey show. He absolutely lit it up. Uh, you know, uh, he ran for 207 yards. He caught, uh, uh, he caught the ball. Uh, five catches for uh, – sorry, four catches for 105 yards. Another touchdown there. He was returning for yards. He was everywhere. He broke um, Barry Sanders' all-purpose yards record in this game, and I think he waltzed himself straight in to, straight to New York to the Heisman Trophy presentation. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Josh? Well, my boy Christian McCaffrey uh, did it again. No, my, my – Biggest thing is hats off to the Stanford defense. You know, they got carved up in the previous game by Cody Kessler, and he was awful, completely ineffective, 22 of 37, a buck 87, and a touchdown. Uh, that won't cut it against a team as good as Stanford. Uh, well done by the Cardinal. They had all the pressure in the world, really. I mean, they still had a crack at the tournament. Potentially, you never know. Um, they, they're they taking on an 8-4 and four team that – no one expected them to really be there with a freshly hired former interim coach um, that was playing with house money, and they shut that down. Really well done by the Stanford defense. And, and Matt, you, you talked about Christian and that offense. I mean, I don't need to go into further detail on that. Yeah, I mean, McCaffrey ran for 207, scored on the ground, caught some passes, caught a touchdown. He, uh, he actually – Threw a touchdown as well. Oh uh, yeah, of course. He How threw. Could I forget. I mean, he, he is uh, he is all Mister Everything. Uh, Kevin Hogan caught the touchdown from McCaffrey, which is kind of kind of cool. Uh, but uh, it just, I mean, my goodness, he. Uh, I mean, if there's ever a, a more exciting player to watch, you know, Christian McCaffrey is definitely that guy. Hold on, Coach, I don't want to cut you off, but one thing, funny, everyone's talking about Christian McCaffrey. Oh, he threw for a touchdown, ran for a touchdown, caught a touchdown. Well, guess what? Kevin Hogan the exact, did the exact same thing. Threw for a touchdown, yeah. ran for a touchdown, caught a touchdown. I wonder, I wonder if you go back and look, and I'm going to put that out to all of our uh, – um, millions of listeners out there to uh, put a challenge out there to uh, look up to see when the last time a quarterback and a running back all uh, both threw for a touchdown, ran for a touchdown, and clipped. What about just two teammates doing that in the same game? I mean, that cannot happen that often. So. Yeah. I mean, this one, this is all about Stanford, um, but, you know, it wasn't quite enough for them to make it into the playoff, but they have to feel feel pretty good about themselves going 11-2 and two on the year. They'll be going to the Rose Bowl, um, but now we finally got to get to the game. Josh, you were in the house, the Big Ten Championship game. Um, you know, you and I texted a lot last night after the game. Uh, kind of a heartbreaker, but you, you know, 
you know, let's just give us your thoughts on this one. I'm not heartbroken at all. Um, I think a heartbreaking loss is when you shoot yourselves in the foot, like, you know, say, say CJ had thrown a pick six late in the game and that killed us, you know. When you lose like that, that hurts. When you get jobbed by the ref, like if I was a North Carolina fan, I would not have slept last night. But Iowa played their tails off. They, they left it all out on the field and simply put the better team won. Um, and, you know, you can get into some really, really minute details like, you know, there was a, a third and one that we did a quarterback sneak and resulted in a fourth and inches and we punted, and it was near midfield. There was the weird bounced interception in the, the, the end zone, which was a fantastic play by the Sparty guy to, to uh, blow up the tight end to pop it loose. But, you know, for every little quibble that might have gone Iowa's way, a, a Michigan State fan can say, hey, you know, we missed an easy field goal. It, you know, they could have had three more points. They missed another field goal in his range. Uh, that, that doinked off the corner where the, the crossbar meets the, the upright. You know, they could have had six points right there. So uh, I, I think it was just a fantastic game to be a part of. I slept fine last night. You know, I love my team. The, the, one of the, my favorite things about it was um, almost, I would say, 90 to 95% of the Iowa fans stayed they did a standing ovation. They were cheering super loud. You could barely hear the Michigan State people as Iowa regrouped in the end zone. The team saluted the fans, and, you know, they walked off as a unit. That was really special. I mean, I think some other teams might have in that situation just been like, oh, screw it, we lost. Let's go out and drink. But the, the Iowa fans did a really good job. Um, they said the announced attendance was 66,000. Uh, I would say probably about 40 of those were Iowa fans. Um, I think that might have helped us maybe get in the Rose Bowl, which we'll talk about later. I know the rankings certainly helped that we were out of Ohio State in two of the three polls, but um, obviously Rose Bowl committee people were there. And to see us uh, do a pinwheel at a neutral site, how loud we got, how well we traveled, uh, I'm sure that stuck with the committee. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, watching this game, I thought, um, you know, I, it played out about like what I thought it was going to, uh, much like the SEC championship. I thought this was going to be a slugfest. I thought it was going to be power football, lots of defense, lots of running, and, and really it was a decent amount of running for Michigan State. And I think Michigan State's defense did a great job of, of really quieting Iowa's rushing attack. You know, I think – if I if I look at the stats here, Jordan Canizzari had. Uh, well, he got hurt. He was Canizzari got knocked out of the game, so yeah. that, that is one thing to keep in mind. With After two carries and twelve yards, gets knocked out of the game. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that you know that's that's one thing that really kind of hurt their rushing attack. I think you know your leading your leading rusher uh, via carries is Lashawn Daniels with eight. Um, I, you know, Josh, and I'll, I'll, I'll defer to you on this. Do you think that when Kinzeri went out, do you think they kind of panicked a little bit and tried to do something that was uncharacteristic of them or, you know, was no, it- they look, they look the same. Um, it, it's interesting. All three running backs are very, very different. Um, LaShawn, who they then brought in, um, he's more of a power back. And he's been slowed by a high ankle sprain in the second half of the season. 
Um, and then they, they went a few times to Akram Wadley. But the thing with Wadley is he's uh, he's the probably the highest ceiling guy they have. He's by far the fastest running back. But he's had a couple fumble issues in his career. And I just don't know how good he is in, in pass protection, things like that. And Iowa knew they needed to pass. And, and we saw that in the fourth quarter when they really started to open up their offense. I, I think if there's anything that you could say – cost Iowa is the defense was out there for a long time in the third quarter. Iowa only had, I think, two first downs that entire quarter. That really, really hurt them. And uh, due to some defensive line injuries, um, that's one of their thinner units. And to be playing game 13 as a thin unit and to have played as long as they did – you saw them get worn down, and, and that's why Michigan State was able to to have such a good final drive. I, I did think it was interesting, though, that you know Iowa you know, punched them in the mouth. Michigan State was stunned. They they were pulling out some plays that I hadn't seen them do all year. They did a little shuffle pass at one point. They did a, a tight end end around at one point, and then the fourth down conversion play was an option with Connor Cook. Um, they had to go to some unique stuff that I'm sure uh, Phil Parker, the defensive coordinator, and Kirk Ferentz hadn't seen on tape. And you know, credit Michigan State to having that deep in their their playbook to to pull out in a situation like that. But um, at the same time, you know, that's a, that reflects well for Iowa's game plan that you had to go to something you hadn't done all year in order to win that game. It, it was just an epic battle. It reminded me of the first fight in in Rocky uh, where. Uh, Apollo won, Michigan State won, but it was a split decision. You know, these were two great teams. I think you saw, see why they just simply flipped in the rankings because I don't know how you can necessarily say that, you know, Michigan State's light years ahead of Iowa or that Iowa's, you know, some of the chatter leading up to the game was that we were going to get killed and all that. But uh, what a game to be a part of. Exactly. Yeah. This is this is uh, Matt. Sorry to cut you off. I'll, I'll be quick with this. But you know, when when you look at sixteen thirteen slugfest games that are six to three at halftime, you know, defense is playing well. You know, unlike the SEC championship, uh, the SEC championship was ugly, a lot of mistakes, just kind of, just kind of not really all that exciting. But this one was, you know, this game was, was much different from that. It had a different feel to it, and and you saw you know, two elite defenses going at it and, and playing the big defensive chess match. And, and it was a lot, it was a lot more exciting, uh, especially if you like defensive football. And I don't think this fits in that category of an ugly defensive win. I think it was a very, you know, you just got to tip your hat to Michigan State. They made a couple more plays and, and, and they came up victorious. Yeah, that, 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 that 22 play drive at the end of the game that LJ Scott scored on, that's the, that is the uh, longest drive in college football this year in terms of total plays, uh, which, you know, 22, 22 plays in a single drive is quite patently absurd. Um, that I, I've, I can never remember seeing uh, the likes of that before. So yeah. um, well, the, the last thing I was going to say was, honestly, if you had told me before the game, you're going to have a lead in the fourth quarter and your defense is going to be out there. Every Iowa fan would take in a heartbeat. And if you had told us at the beginning of the year, hey, you're going to lose, you're going to lose a thrilling Big Ten title game and end up in Pasadena, I think 99.9% of the Iowa fans would say, stamp my ticket, and you'd get the disgruntled 
0.1% that you can't please with anything that would bitch and moan about not being Big Ten champs. Well, uh, you know, speaking of Pasadena, Josh, will you be going? Uh, we are talking about it. We're trying to figure it out. Um, I know my dad has said before that Pasadena is on his bucket list, and he had said a couple of years ago when uh, the Orange Bowl selected Iowa over, uh, you know, the Orange Bowl had, this was back in the BCS era, the Orange Bowl got to pick before the Rose Bowl, and the uh, the Orange Bowl snatched, it, snatched us up. He said if they ever get to Pasadena, he'll move heaven and earth to find a way to get out there. So uh, I would say tentatively right now we will probably be spending New Year's Eve in SoCal. Uh, that sounds that sounds excellent. All right. Well, um, let's just talk real quick about a couple of the Group of Five championship games. Uh, first, we'll talk uh, My American Conference. Um, Greg Ward Jr. leads Houston uh, to a 24-13 victory over the Owls of Temple. Not the prettiest game of the weekend. I watched most of this one, uh, but it was really all about Greg Ward Jr. Actually more on the ground than through the air. He ran for 148 yards and two touchdowns. And, you know, uh, Houston now as the uh, highest-ranked group of five team gets to go to the Peach Bowl uh, where they will take on Florida State. Obviously, we'll have a little some bowl previews previews for you a little bit later but uh did you do you guys catch uh, uh any of this game and if so what were your thoughts i'll start with you coach well uh which game did you say i was uh I spaced out for a second houston <laughs> yeah houston, <laughs> houston <laughs> temple yes sorry ADD. um yeah I, I caught a little bit of it um i was really watching the texas baylor game for a lot of for a lot of time i kept getting hooked into that especially when the when they had a, a bench clearing brawl um that texas baylor game was like like a car crash like you couldn't turn your eyes i could not turn i like you you don't want to turn your eyes away because it was so like intriguing. No, you don't. scary at no. the time but um, we're, we're not here to talk about them no, we're not. Um, but I, I will say Greg Ward Jr. running for 148 and two touchdowns. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it was impressive. It just goes to show you what what kind of job that Tom Herman has done at, at, at with uh, with the Houston Cougars. I think that um, bringing his style of football. I think you're seeing Ohio State missing him a little bit. And uh, you missing know, why? Yeah, I mean, shoot. Yeah, I, I was being a little facetious when I said that, but they're no, they're they're missing him tremendously. Um, they're missing his style of uh, of offense or his style of uh, in-game uh, uh, play calling, uh, just just an overall sense of the game. I think he's done a tremendous job in motivating this bunch, uh, getting them to believe that they're better than they probably actually are. Um, and and that's not to say that, you know, that's not to say Temple's no slouch either. I mean, I, th- I think Matt Rule has done a, a, a fantastic job as well. Temple 10 and 3. You know, a program like Temple to be ranked where they are, uh, that's that's pretty impressive. And they haven't really done that since, uh, you know, since, <laughs> yeah, I mean, since Al Golden was there and they did it briefly there and then he left to go to Miami and, and went back. And, and I don't know, now they're back again. So um, it, it was just, you know, for what little bit of I, I watched, it was a pretty, you know, pretty exciting game. I think both teams were were, were in it. It was a very, it was definitely a very exciting game. I mean, yeah, uh, I, it, Josh, I was going to say, I think both teams really knew the stage of it and maybe came out a little tight. It seemed like it seemed like they weren't quite comfortable in the, it, 
in the early going, and I think you kind of saw that by a slow start. And then Temple uh, getting down by 21 points midway through the third. Um, really, you know, that's not their comfort zone, and they, they had to let P.J. Walker uh, unleash the beast. And he played pretty well there, almost brought them back. I mean, I know, he, you know, he got, got some uh, – they got 13 um, – unanswered points or whatever with him and ended up scoring that field goal to cut it to 24-13 in the fourth with 11 and a half minutes to go. So they're kind of within striking distance despite being out of their comfort zone. I think that's a sign of a well-coached team. And we've talked about Matt Rule all year. They just, they just didn't quite have enough to crack the Houston nut because Houston when we previewed the, the game, we talked about how they're well-known for Greg Ward Jr., but this is a deceptively stout defensive club, very, very balanced. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it was it was a good one to watch. It was definitely a good one to watch. You're right, they did come out a little bit tight, but once they opened it up, second quarter really really started to see a little bit of scoring get going. Um, I was actually really I was actually very impressed by uh, Temple uh, Temple wide receiver Robbie Anderson. He uh, you know he made some of those guys some of the Houston D backs look like fools. He was catching balls all over the place. Twelve catches, 150 yards, and a touchdown. He was really the only offense that Temple could really get going yesterday. Jahad Thomas, you know, they're all conference running back just got bottled up only was getting 3.6 yards per carry so uh kudos to the houston defense for really you know making temple throw on them and um you know not allowing that really strong temple rushing attack to get going um let's talk about what happened on friday real quick um with uh the mac title game uh bowling green winning uh as expected over northern illinois 34 to 14 uh northern illinois was on like their 18th string quarterback so we didn't really expect a whole lot out of this one did we josh no and i think the only thing we need to talk about for this game since we already touched on dino babers is on the flip side the huskies this team never say says die rod Carew has you know the, the the battling despite all the adversity in the world that's just how the program has been dating back to jerry kill they've had other coaches there it, they're just the class of the mac and they were down 21 nothing at halftime. They were down 28 nothing in the third. Their defense found some ways to adjust. They scored two touchdowns in the third. They made it 28-14. They turned it into a game. They couldn't quite get over the hump. But, man, the Huskies are like cockroaches. They never go away. They battled back in this game. And just hats off to the Huskies. And I really hope they get awarded for their hard effort all year long with a rash of injuries with a nice bowl win in their 13th or 14th game. Yeah. Josh, a quick question for you. Is Northern Illinois the best football program in the state of Illinois? Just yes or no? No, because Northwestern, uh, I would say right now is a better run pro. Well, Northwestern is a better team this year. Northern Illinois for all the, uh, the facilities and being a smaller school, they are probably the best run program. Yeah. All right. Um, well, uh, let, let's move from there. 
uh, over to the Mountain West, where San Diego State won a thriller, 27-24, as, um, as Donnie Hageman, uh, their kicker, knocked one in from 46 yards uh, to win the game over Air Force for the Aztecs. Uh, you know, this one was a lot closer. I think a lot of us expected San Diego State at home to just kind of roll over uh, Air Force, and this ended up being a, really a thriller. Yeah, well, well, like you said, you got to be sound in the kicking game. Donnie Hagman, two two field goals long of a forty six, get all of his extra points. When you get nine points from your kicker in a game this tight, that's huge. So let's give some love to the special teams player. Uh, STSU survived a game where Donnell Pumphrey did not have his A game. So hats off to the Falcons for getting it done defensively. We questioned if they had the the size in the trenches to, to slow down Pumphrey, and, and they did. Well done by the Falcons. This is always a, a really well-coached team, and they proved it yet again. Well, uh, one, one, one thing to note from this game is that uh, San Diego State's uh, redshirt freshman quarterback, Christian Chapman, was making his first start. And, and what a game to make his first start in. He was taking, uh, he was taking the place of injured quarterback Mike, Maxwell Smith, who had a knee injury in the regular season finale against Nevada. Uh, you know, I, I think it, you know, you got to look at it and say, man, what a, what a tremendous job done by Richard, uh, Richard freshman quarterback making his first start with the help of a kicker, you know, really just kind of, made things good for uh, for San Diego State and, and a, a big win. Air Force is a, is a tremendous uh, tremendous team, and uh, you know, I think they did a good job. All right, and finally, uh, Western Kentucky, um, uh, you know, threw it all over the yard. Uh, Brandon Doty, 410 yards and three touchdowns over the Mustard Buzzards, Southern Miss, um, in the CUSA title game. Uh Coach, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think we talked about this uh, on the pod last week, but West Kentucky, man, what an offense. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're just, they're just lighting it up, man. Todd Hilton, uh, Todd Hilton. Baseball. <laughs> Baseball. Uh, <laughs> Todd Hilton was Peyton Manning's roommate at Tennessee. Yes, yes, he was. Uh, Ty Hilton, uh, the brother of Clay Helton, uh, who's I think reportedly going to join his brother in, in Southern California, um, they put up 45 points in a tremendous offensive display. I think I think they've only scored underneath 40 points in like one of their games this year. Um, that they, you know, I think it was one of their losses. But uh, I mean, tr- I mean, Doughty threw for 410 yards and three touchdowns. Home, just another. I mean, you would get excited, you know, for any other quarterback, but I think this is just routine for this guy. So, um, you know, he was 34 or 52. I mean, come on now. That's it, you know, that's just, that's like video game stats. And, uh, this, you know, I, I got hooked watching this game a little bit too. I mean, the, the, the Hilltoppers and the Mustard Buzzards and, and all the offense that was going on. I mean, it was 45-28, so not a tremendous amount of defense going on in, in this game. So um, very exciting to watch, I will say. Congrats to the Hilltoppers, 11-2, 8-0 in conference. Uh, very good season for them. Heading to the Miami Beach Bowl. So, well, Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the biggest thing about this game is Nick Mullins – Really, really good quarterback for Southern Miss. Hadn't thrown for less than 265 yards in a game 
all year long, entered with 35 touchdowns and nine interceptions. Uh, whatever Western Kentucky was doing, it tripped him up because he was 15 to 30 for a buck 81, one touchdown, three interceptions. Southern Miss overall had four turnovers. When you're the underdog, when you're playing on the road in a conference title game like this, where you have to go to the opposition's house, that's never easy. And putting yourself behind the eight ball against a really high powered offense is never ideal either. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we question if Miss Southern Miss was ready for a big time major game like this. Their program had been down for so many years. It was a little surprising to see them in this situation. And, uh, we, I think they came out a little tight also, and you see that with so many turnovers. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, uh, we're running a little bit over time, uh, as we expected tonight. So um, <laughs> we're, we're going to wrap up um, tonight by just talking. We can, I just give one, can I just give one quick super shout-out? Uh, well, I was gonna say, we're going we're gonna to do just a uh, – each of us is going to do a, a quick slant, one bowl game, under-the-radar uh, bowl this game. Is, this isn't you're a bowl excited, game. You're excited <laughs> for it? But go no, for it, Josh. Go yeah. for it. What, what you got? Uh, the Wizard, Bill Snyder, does it again, outgained by almost 150 yards, managed to put, throw together a team with, like, bubblegum and duct tape. They had 98 rushing yards on a two-point average, two turnovers. They lost the turnover margin. They lost the yardage. Fewer first downs. And yet they won the second half 21-10 to 10, to overcome a big halftime hole. Knocked off West Virginia. They earned their bowl game going six and six. They didn't have to rely on the five and seven mumbo jumbo like Minnesota, Nebraska. Hats off to Bill Snyder. This season was a debacle based on injuries, and yet here they are in another bowl game. Bill Snyder is the MacGyver of coach of coaches. Yeah, they had no reason winning that game. West Virginia was up thirteen to three and blowing them out of the water at halftime. West Virginia probably could have won that game by thirty, but Snyder made all the adjustments. All right. Well, uh, Coach, um, what, what, what's one bowl game you're excited for, a little under the radar? Well, uh, a little under the radar, the uh, the Sun Bowl, which features Miami versus the, the Angry Pirate, um, Washington State. I think this is going to be uh, an interesting one to watch. I haven't seen Washington State in a bowl game in quite some time, so that'll be, that'll be new. I think this is going to be one of those kind of exciting offenses. I think Miami – uh, has done a tremendous job to close out the season. Um, see Brad Kaya in in, uh, in the bowl game uh, versus uh, versus Mr. Falk there for uh, Washington State. I think it'll be an interesting contest. All right, Josh. What about you? What under the radar bowl game? I have two quick ones, so I'll fly through them. First of all, uh, North Carolina Baylor in the Russell Athletic Bowl. That's going to be really high scoring. Baylor has until December 29th to get healthy, so I expect their offense to be a lot better than it was against Texas. The other one that I'm really, really, really excited about is the Las Vegas Bowl. No, that was one of mine. Well, the Pac-12, the Pac-12 team, you're always questioning if they're going to be interested in that game. Well, Utah is taking on their blood rival, BYU. The Holy War in Las Vegas. Yes. Well, Matt, since I stole yours, um, how about... Well, I, I got one other. I got one oh, other. You got, a, you got a backup one? I got one other. It's the GoDaddy Bowl. Um, does anyone, can any of you name where the GoDaddy Bowl takes place? Birmingham, Alabama. Bowl 
Mobile, Alabama. That is right. Where the Georgia Southern uh, Eagles, those Georgia Southern Eagles with the number one rushing offense in the country, take on the Bowling Green Falcons with the number three passing offense in the country. I am excited for a super high-scoring game there. That that is going to be... Uh, you know, such a clash of different styles. Bowling Green passes it every down. George Southern running that option like no one else does. Uh, that That's going to be so much fun. So that's what I'm really excited about. The, the lifeline I was going to throw you was the Alamo Bowl with Oregon and TCU. Meh, doesn't do anything for me compared to the GoDaddy Bowl. So, <laughs> um, well, we will be getting to um, uh, our bowl previews uh, sometime next week. But coming up later this week, we've got the Illegal Motion Podcast first annual award show. Um, we'll, where we'll be handing out lots of different uh uh, lots of different hardware, or I guess it'll be virtual hardware, um, to uh, our, you know, to some of our favorite players and teams all around the country. So be stick, stay in tune for that. And uh, other parting shots from you guys. Going to be an exciting bowl season. I was I was perusing the uh, the matchup list, and you know I can't wait to get into these previews. Uh, UGA versus Penn State in the Tax Slayer Bowl, Houston versus FSU in the Peach Bowl. Uh, the Alamo Bowl, TCU versus Oregon, all um, three other bowls that I'm going to be really excited to keep an eye on, uh, that amongst others. So Obviously uh, for, for us, night. yeah, Wisconsin versus USC in the Holiday Bowl. So yeah. uh, my, party, my parting shot is Arkansas State finishing strong, 8-0 in conference, 9-3 and overall, undisputed Sun Belt champion. They could have uh, – Slept walk against Texas State. Instead, they dropped 55 on them in a blowout. Yep. They're, going to, they're going to a bowl game with a lot of momentum and confidence. Definitely. You know, uh, like they say about some, about one true champion, baby. Um, <laughs> well, um, on behalf of uh, the coach, Corey Burton, in Nashville, Tennessee, and our blogger, Josh Cook, back in Chicago, Illinois, I am the professor, Matt Perkins, saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.